You have given so many questions that I want to just plow right into those questions as quickly as possible this evening. And so, if we would, here's what we're doing. If you're visiting with us this evening, we have been doing a series that is called, What Does the Future Hold? And in that series, we've had a variety of weeks where we've talked at length about different prophetic events. I left out a chart that this morning and this evening put out there that give you just a basic graph. There's not all the specifics, but there's some details to them that give you an idea of what the future future holds and some of the specifics. There's one of the charts that gives you a lot of verses, a lot of references that give some of that information that we've shared already. But then what we did in the course of doing this study is I opened it up to the congregation several weeks ago and said, if you have questions, fill out cards and we'll gladly be able to uh, have the cards. And the reason I did the cards and not just an open session and say, let's do it right on the spot is by you filling them out, that gives you opportunity to better clarify your question and gives me an opportunity to think through how I best want to answer some of the questions or try to figure out exactly where you were going. I thought this week in preparation was going to be a really easy week of just sitting back and just running on fumes and on, on knowledge of what we shared, but your questions have forced me to do a whole lot more study than I ever thought this would involve, but they are very, very good questions. And we dealt with a few of them this morning. I want to just start in going into some of the other questions that you asked. Here's one somebody asks, is there any evidence that saints in heaven are able to observe what is happening on earth, happening to family members, things like that, or is the focus entirely on the new life taking place in heaven? We mentioned this when we were in, a, in part of the series talking about life after death, that in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the account of Lazarus and the rich man that both of them die and the rich man goes to hell or Hades. Lazarus, the poor man, goes to paradise. And at that moment, we pointed out that it's not because of wealth, it's not because of money, it was because of the character. And uh, that the one was selfish and the other one wasn't. And so they ended up, the, the account tells us what happens. The rich man in hell experiences all kinds of pain. While he is suffering the torments in hell, he remembers his former life. Abraham, who is consoling the one in paradise, even says, remember in your lifetime, you had a lot of wealth and you were selfish. But Lazarus, he suffered a lot in his lifetime. And so they still remembered their past experiences. In fact, the rich man also remembers his brothers. He says, I have brothers that are still on the earth. And he says, can somebody go and warn them? Can somebody give them the message? And that's when Abraham responds. He says, if they have the word of God, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to somebody come back in a sensational moment. And so we get indication from this passage that individuals who are in hell, in that case in particular, had a that they are aware to a degree of family and past experiences and of family members who are still on earth uh, as we know it. <coughs> I suppose the awareness becomes more reality if their family joins them in hell. But they are somewhat aware of what what's they left behind. There is also another text we pointed out, Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, and I should have given you the specific reference, of the verses. I know it's on the second column at the very top of that page. Um, so none of you do this, but I sometimes go by where it is in that on the page of the Bible. Then so Revelation chapter 6, right about in verses 9, 10, 11, he's talking about that certain people who are during the tribulation are martyred, that they are under the altar. And they're there. And while they're under the altar, they are able to remember their suffering. 
And they pray at that moment, Lord, how long until you basically avenge us? How long until you stop the evil that's going on on planet Earth at that point? And when is it going to be all finished? When are you going to bring judgment to Antichrist and those people? So those individuals in heaven, they remember. They remember their past experiences. And they are aware that it still is going on on planet Earth. And so to, the, to part of your question is, is there some um, remembrance? Yes. Is there some awareness? Yes. How much? I don't know. I don't, have a, I don't know how much we're aware. I do know this, okay, that the Bible says that when we are in that eternity, when we're in that new heaven, that new earth, he says, behold, I create a new heaven, new earth. The former things shall not be remembered. And so there's going to come in a time and a place that we're so enamored with heaven, we forget the past. In fact, he even makes that comment in Revelation 22 that God will wipe the tears from our eyes and all the former things are past away. And so in this sense, is there going to come a time in the future that we are, are, we are going to be um, remembering all the details? It seems not, and it seems that God ministers in such a way that he takes us over that level of remembrance, difficulties, and challenges. I would say this, there clearly is in Scripture no indication that those who are in heaven or hell can interact with us. They could have limited awareness, but they can't get involved. And for anybody to pray to a relative who is in heaven, that is, that is wrong scripturally. There is one mediator between God and man. That one is Jesus Christ. So we don't pray to any individuals other than Jesus Christ who's in heaven. Somebody asked this, will law or grace be the controlling factor during the millennium? Um... Uh, I'm not sure how to answer it. So here's where I'll, I'll go in the way I'll unpack uh, it. Jesus is said in scriptures to rule with a rod of iron. Multiple times that during that thousand years, we are heard that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. The idea is he's going to be an absolute in charge. He's going to be controlling. And yet we know this, uh, along with his ruling with, uh, with a rod of iron, holiness will be required. Zechariah chapter 14. Holiness will even be on the, on the bridles of the horses. Holiness will be written even on the trash cans, if you would. And so there's going to be in that time period uh, a dictatorship uh, where Jesus is in charge. Jesus is demanding, commanding that people live a holy life. And during that time, if somebody is disobedient, there is going to be quick execution of punishment. Some punishment where he talks about the idea in, um, in uh, Zechariah 14, he makes one comment. Uh, how does he use the phrase? He will strike, I forget the exact word that he uses, and uh, it, it has a very forceful sound uh, to the word, and I can't remember what it is. But in the previous verse, it talks about he will withhold the rains, the, the rain that's coming down for crops to grow. And so in that sense, right there in that one text, some of the discipline that's going to take place during the, during the millennium to those that refuse to follow um, in their heart and in their bodies, he's going to deal with them quickly. Some may die, but others will only suffer just the withholding of the rain. In a sense, that's grace. In a sense that God doesn't wipe people out right away. In, in the sense that even during the period of the law, where there were so many rules and regulations, did God show grace? Oh, time and time and time again, where Israel, he put up with them, he didn't destroy them, he didn't wipe them out. So there was grace that even complemented along with the law. 
And even when Jesus Christ is in our time period and says we are in the age of grace, do we still have rules that we are supposed to abide by? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. That's the problem in the book of Galatians. Some say, because I am saved and I'm no longer under the law, I don't have to live. I can live any way I please. And he says, no, 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 no. He says that even though we don't have the same rules and regulations as they used to have in the Old Testament, we still have standards of holiness and righteousness and honesty and integrity that we have to abide by. And so the, this blending of law and grace, I think is a, they're both involved in that sense. In fact, what I don't know about the millennium, and neither do you, is what laws will we be operating by? What rules will be there? We don't know. He's never given us a full understanding of all the rules. And when we were talking about dispensations this morning, I didn't make this comment, but I want you to understand something, that through time, every time we moved into a new dispensation, there was a new, uh, a new amount of revelation, explanation of what is being required. And so I would assume that same pattern is going to happen when we go into the millennium, that we will get new instructions, we will become aware of what we are supposed to be abiding by, by and how we're supposed to operate. And so the answer to this question, will our grace be the controlling factor? Yes. All that to say, I don't know beyond yes. And you were saying you were concerned about somebody rambling and going on a rabbit trail. Okay. During the millennium, some will help God rule. What will the other believers do during that time? Okay, I'm convinced in my heart and my life, uh, in my, my heart and mind, that I am not going to have hardly any rewards when I meet Jesus Christ. I just feel like I'm a bum spiritually. And so I'm really curious about this question because I figure a lot of you will rule and I'm going to be doing something at an underling compared to you. And uh, so we did spend a message in Revelation uh, in the series number 16 that in that evening we talked about and we went through a number of these passages that indicated some of the things we're going to be doing besides ruling and reigning with Christ, and it included learning, teaching, traveling, fishing, raising, building. So there's going to be a lot of activity. The bottom line is this. In the millennium, we are not going to get bored. We're going to be busy. We're going to be active doing these. In fact, it, it's an interesting statement. In Isaiah 65, when it talks about work and producing, it talks about we will bring our wealth into the city of Jerusalem. There's going to be some type of, of monetary setup some way. Okay, that there's an indication of wealth, that there's going to be some activity and prosperity of some degree, and it's going to be happening where we're going to be working, we're going to be producing, we're going to be displaying what we have earned or been able to do for Jesus Christ and bring it to his glory. That's what I know, and that's as much information as I can give you because we don't have other details. The resurrection body. Will our hearts and minds also be perfected? How would you answer that? Okay. Do you expect that when you get to heaven and with the resurrection body that you will still have your sin nature with you? No. No, it's going to be eradicated, okay? That when we see Christ, we shall be as he, he is in that sense that we want, our sin nature will be done. And that includes, okay, what about our minds and our spirits? Will we still struggle with our thought lives? No, our sin nature is going to be eradicated. 
And so when we get there, uh, we shall be like him as he is. We're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we're not talking just physically. We're not going to become gods. But we're going to be, in the sense, physically, our resurrection bodies will be similar to his. Uh, spiritually, we will have come to the point where we're not gods, but we are no longer dealing with sin. We will be like Adam and Eve when they first created. And that sense that we will have this opportunity to serve. We won't be struggling with that anymore. Here's a question that went right along with it. Will we be provided the perfect spouse and have children? Will the children of the resurrected have a sin nature? Um, the, the Matthew 22 is your verse that, you want, that answers this. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking, and Jesus is giving, a, giving a, uh, an answer to those who come up to him. And what they do is they come up to him, and they say, Jesus, and they're trying to trick Jesus. Jesus, there was a woman who got married, and her first husband died. So according to the Old Testament law, the brother had to marry because they didn't have children. And so then he died, and then the other brother, and she goes through seven brothers. Okay, this is a tough woman you don't want to touch, okay. But the, the account is they're trying to trip Jesus up, and they say to him, whose wife will she be in the future? Okay, and Jesus answers this way. In the resurrection, whose wife? That's the question they ask. Here's Jesus' answer. You do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. The, every indication that we have from scripture is the angels don't procreate. They don't have baby angels. Those cherubs that float around and shoot the arrows and make people fall in love, Okay, that's exaggeration by people. There is no indication that there's angel babies. Okay, and so the indication is that the angels are not procreating race. When we get our resurrection bodies, we are not procreating. That idea that people will go into heaven and ladies will be eternally pregnant. Okay, ladies go, are you kidding me? Okay, that's not going to be the case. Okay, we who are resurrected, we will not be involved in the marriage relationships like we are now. We will not be involved in the relationships that we have now in the sense of having children, raising children. But rather, we are now focused on Jesus Christ. Will we remember our families? No doubt. Okay, we will still recognize them even as the apostles recognized Moses and Enoch when they were at the Mount of Transfiguration. We will still have recall, memory, things of that sort. But our function, our activities aren't going to be involved in the same thing that we are now today focused this way. We'll be focused where we'll be enamored with Jesus Christ. So in answer to the question, we're not going to have an inner relationship with those who are bearing children during the millennium. We who are have resurrection bodies, we will be interacting with them in helping, assisting, teaching, as we already said, but we're not going to be engaged in earthly relationships with them of marriage, having children, of, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, right along with that, somebody asked another question, and let me just uh, pull my cards because it went so close to this. Um, you mentioned when people enter heaven, they will remember their life and recognize people. True. Will they also be granted perspective of their life experiences from miscommunication, traumatic events that happened to them? Also, from that knowledge, will they be able to have complete closure, forgiveness, feelings of, from the feelings of discomfort of certain people uh, that had afflicted them? How do you think that is? Will people remember the traumatic events and still be confused when we're in heaven? 
I don't think so. I don't think so. I agree with you with the no. The reason I say that is Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, 4, it says that God will wipe away all tears, okay? And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it makes that comment that today we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, and we will know in, uh, we will know even as we are known. I think when we get to heaven, yes, we will have a better understanding of why things happened. God can explain it to us. Will it be innate with us? I don't know, or if he's going to explain it. I think in heaven that we have comfort, we have encouragement, we have peace. I think that those of us who may have had a traumatic experience in our childhood, I think that that is taken away, eradicated in some way, shape, or form, and it's not going to be haunting us for the rest of eternity. And as a result, um, what about the people who are saved and we've had a difficult relationship with saved people? Uh, if we had a difficult relationship with parents, with pastors, with church members, and we get to heaven, will we still have that difficult relationship? Again, this is an I think now. I think that idea of Revelation chapter 21 and 22 where we talked about last week that the new Jerusalem is transparent. There's no more, there's no more partitions in the walls. There's, it's clear. We mentioned last week that that seems to be expressing the idea we will get along. We don't have to have secrets. We don't have to keep people out of our life. There will be a harmony between us like there is harmony with innocent children who with their family members and we won't have the conflicts and the struggles that that, that we have here on this earth. That's my thought, that in heaven we will get along, and even the people who harmed us, I think it'll be reconciled, it'll be dealt with by the Lord himself in some way, shape, or form. Um, beyond that, somebody asked this question. What is the real purpose of the thousand-year period of the millennial kingdom? And that's a really good question, because if you're like me, I think, well, wait a minute, there's a, a thousand years. Why even bother having the thousand years? Because it's very similar in many ways to the new creation. Why not just go to the new creation? The, uh, the reasons that make sense to me from the Bible are these. Okay, and They're not in order of importance, but I just put three down. One is, there are many prophecies in Scripture talking about how God will replenish this earth and make this earth like it was in the Garden of Eden. He even talks about the creation groaning for its redemption, its regeneration, its change, and its being brought back to its original state. So to fulfill the predictions in regard to creation, before he destroys it, there's going to be a millennial period here on a renovated earth. I think more impacting is there are many prophecies God made to Israel that Israel would possess a large portion of the Middle East they have never possessed all the land that was promised to Abraham. Even in the glory years, the golden years of David and Solomon, they, they almost possessed all the region, but they still haven't. And Israel today does not possess everything God promised them. And so to fulfill the promise of God that they will have that entire Middle East region, the, the millennium. They will be living in that area of the world. That area of the world will be in existence in that regard. And so to bring about uh, that opportunity for that fulfillment, you have the millennium where Israel is going to be occupying most of the entire Middle East in a peaceful setting. I think as well that God in his grace is giving another opportunity for people to get born again. That God knows that those people in his design plan, he will, they'll be giving birth, their children will get the opportunity 
opportunity to hear the gospel in a time of peace, in a time of, of safety, and so God is giving another opportunity. Beyond that, I don't have anything better to offer in answer to that question. Why will we need government in heaven? That's a good question, okay? That government, we, we assume that government keeps everything in place. And let me make this comment uh, to be semi-critical of modern day. We in our world put too much stock in government. Okay, we do even in, from the Christian realm. We know that government is a good thing at times, that they are ministers for God to be able to minister, and they are good in order they are supposed to do two things, according to the Word of God. They are to punish the evildoer, and they are to praise the well-doers. That's government's purpose, according to the Word of God. And though beyond that, we can get into a whole political discussion that could take days and days of what the government's doing and how does it line up with Scripture. But the question is, why is there government in the future? If government, we look today and most of us think government is very corrupt, has a negative connotation. Understand just a couple thoughts. Number one, God's choice, God's plan. He institutes government. He can do what he wants. It's his kingdom, it's his new heaven and new earth. Beyond that, let me point out something about government. When we say government, I'm, I'm coming from this perspective, maybe you don't, but this is my definition and answering. When we talk about government, I'm talking about the idea of somebody having authority to another person, some type of rule, some type of hierarchy, whether it be between two people or one person and 20 in the community, whatever it is. With that in mind, God always is a person of order. God is not the author of confusion, but he is the author of order. Would you agree with that? Okay, that's biblical, so you better say yes. Okay, It says that God is not the author of confusion, but he's a God of order. Whoops. Uh, he's a God of orderliness. Even within the Godhead, would you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and notice something that is really a critical thought theologically uh, in dealing with situations? In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about husband and wife relationships. And in the husband and wife relationship, there isn't this total equality between the couple. Rather, one is supposed to have a little bit more of authority and leadership than the other person in the, in the good relationship. And so from creation order, he says that the husband was put in charge, the wife was made for the husband not the other way around. He uses an illustration of that, which is critical to understand in 1 Corinthians 11, how the Trinity operates. He says this, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. Keep the ordinances. I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. We understand that. That makes sense. The head of the woman is the man. We understand. That makes sense from creation order. The head of Christ is, is God. Even within the Trinity, there is a hierarchy of order, of operation. None of them are less God, but who is the designer that sent the Son? Whose will I choose, I delight to do His will? It's the Father. And then you have the Spirit, then you have the Son, then you have the Spirit. What's the Spirit's job? To point people to Jesus Christ, to elevate Christ. Within perfection... Within complete holiness, there is hierarchy of government, of rule. So don't assume where there is hierarchy, where there is orderliness, it is something bad. It is something very good. God has it within his own personage. So for him to put that in what he created, when he created the angels, he has some who are the archangels. 
Some who are the leading angels. Do you remember who was the ultimate leader originally? It was Satan. Lucifer was the highest of the angels, but he rebelled. And so within, within the angelic realm, God has an government, an order, in order for things to operate orderly. And so in the same way, we go and say, okay, in the original Garden of Eden, was there orderliness? Yeah, that same passage, if you look at verse 9. It says that the woman was made for the man, man was not made for woman. Part of the understanding of that sin that happens in the Garden of Eden is Adam allowed the rule of order to be broken by him listening and following his wife rather than she following him. And so, so you have this idea of that government and in heaven. It's no surprise, therefore, that in God's perfect kingdom, God would have a hierarchy. He would have an orderly system. That is just part of his nature's makeup, the way he's always operated. Here's a question. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53, and 1 Thessalonians 4, both speak about the rapture and the dead and raised at that time. Okay, you're turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so you can make the comparison. And as you're turning, I put up here 1 Corinthians 15. So you've got 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We started off this morning reading that text. It's the text that talks about, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, that you are not going to keep back those who have died before us. And then he goes on and talks about, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so... Taking that text and looking at this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall raise, be raised incorruptible. We shall all be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. Do they speak of the same event? I think they do. I think there's no difficulty in saying, yeah, it's a, it's a very quick event when the event we call the rapture that were taken away. And the dead in Christ will rise just prior to us who are alive and remain. And so they seem to be the same thing. Here's this one. Here is this question again and again and again and again and again. And here is my answer. I cannot definitively say, thus saith the Lord, one way or the other. I know you don't want to hear that. And you're going to think, what? Let me explain what I think and what I want to believe. Okay, there are, there are these different, different approaches when you're taking Scripture. There is very clearly the Scriptures give evidence that we, when we are conceived, we have a soul spirit. Yes or no? Okay, so a baby in the womb, is it a person? Yes. Okay. Does that soul spirit have a sin nature? Yes, Psalm says that in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not talking about sexuality and the sex act, appropriation being sin. It's talking about I was conceived in sin. So I had a sin nature, you had a sin nature from the moment that we are conceived. Okay, um, and what does sin do as far as our relationship with God? It separates us. That is a biblical, biblical argument. Can't get away from it. That sin separates us. What do we have to do in order, what sin do we have to do in order not to get into heaven? Just don't believe. Just don't believe. Okay, right? He that believes not is condemned already. So there are some who are more hardliners than what I am, but I understand where they come from, and if, if you believe that, 
I respect that. There is some who say, because a child has a sin nature and there is, they have not believed yet, they aren't going to get into heaven. For there is no other name given among men whereby men must be saved. What name is that? Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Okay? And so that the, there are those who hold this view would say from scriptures, how do kids, how do babies get saved? And if they do go to heaven, then you have created some other means of them getting into heaven than through Jesus Christ. Somehow there's, you've created an exception that the babies get there without getting whatever term you want to use, born again, saved. And so some will hold that view. There are others of us who choose to believe this. We choose to believe that somehow, some way, God, who is in control and chooses, he in his mercy takes care of babies in some way or shape rather than condemn them. The reason I choose to hold to that is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 or 23. Okay? Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, where this is the story. Some of you are familiar with it right off the top of your head. This is the story. It's 2 Samuel 12, verse 23. Uh, this is the story where David is the king. He's committed sin with Bathsheba. And he's been found out. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells the story about the, the rich man taking somebody else's sheep and slaughtering the sheep. And David says, oh, judge that man for taking somebody else's, the, for, the, for the, the noble man taking some poor man's sheep. And Nathan points his finger and says, David, you're the man. You took somebody else's wife. And she's having a child by you. And so then the pronouncement of, of punishment is on David's family. One of the pronouncements is the child conceived from that immoral, adulterous relationship, the child would not survive. Well, the child is born. The child is sick. David is praying and fasting for that God would spare the child's life, spare the child's life. And then the child dies. The servants come into the room and they look and they say, oh no, what are we going to tell David? David hasn't been eating, sleeping, hasn't been doing anything for days. He's so broken up about the child. If we tell him that the child die, David may go off the wall. And David sees the servants whispering and David makes this comment. This is where we pick up in the story. Where David looks over and he says, um, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his apparel, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came into his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that you are doing? You did fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child is dead, you rise up and you eat bread." David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? And I would put after all in parentheses. But now he, the child, is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring the child back again? No. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I think, I choose to think that David is saying, I and the child be reunited in the afterlife. 
Um, you know, the other, the other verses that I would choose to say as Jesus talks about suffer the children. The other verses that I would lend towards the idea that somehow, some way, God has provided for children who cannot understand um, the, is that idea that even like when Israel was going into the land, did God hold everyone responsible for the decision made or was there a certain age that they were allowed to go into the land? There was a certain age. Those who were above a certain age, they passed away. And so I want to believe this. I lean towards saying this. But I can never say to somebody, thus saith the Lord clearly that this is happening. So I choose to want to believe that God provides for babies that they can go into heaven. And with that, I, I think this, I think that that would include anybody without the ability to reason at all. And uh, I, ch I choose that, okay? And I know that that creates an inconsistency. You have to come up and say, okay, what are you going to choose to believe that's, that's going to be with, uh, with where you're at? So then your question is, like three of your questions, where if that's the case, and it's an if. Uh, oh, let me state this. If I get to heaven and find out that babies are not in heaven, God is still just. God is God. Okay. He is just, and we will fully understand that. So if babies do go to heaven, okay, and I already told you, I want to believe that. If babies go to heaven, then when they get to heaven and you get reunited because of a miscarriage, that you never saw your child, because of an, a stillborn, because of some other situation, what will that child be like? What age will they be? Will you recognize them? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, uh, I just don't know. Um, you know, what will their job be in eternity? Somebody asked. I don't know. I don't know. That's the very best I can give, and somebody else who is much wiser can run with that, but Scriptures doesn't give us any more information, and quite frankly, postulating beyond what Scripture says, that can be for somebody else. Here's another question that somebody asked, okay, that goes along, with, uh, that keeps us going. Where, where will the Holy Spirit be during the millennium? Will he still be indwelling us? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation? I concluded this morning with that idea that during that tribulation period, the Holy Spirit is going to be doing very similar operating the way he did during the bulk of the Old Testament under the law. He is still going to be present because he's God. He's omnipresent. He is still going to be working in hearts of people that need to be regenerated, that need to be, to be having that spiritual work of conviction in their hearts. The big difference is in the Old Testament era under the law, he wasn't indwelling like he does now. Therefore, I don't think that he's indwelling individuals, but I do believe that what he's doing during that time period is he is convicting people of sin. He is trying to woo them to, to salvation. In fact, I do know that in that period of the millennium, somebody asked a question that goes right along with that. Uh, does the Holy Spirit continue to indwell believers in the millennium since Jesus is present? I don't know. But we don't need the paraclete the way we do now because Jesus will be present. But we do know this, that in the millennium, in the millennium, go to, if you wanted to read it, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, clearly says that the Holy Spirit will be entering into the hearts of the, those who are living in the millennium who are believers. 
that they will have a unique relationship during that time, especially referring to the Jews. The same thing is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that the Spirit will be poured upon the hearts of the remnant of the Jews who get saved. And in Joel chapter 2, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all, it says this, he will, be pour out, he will pour out his Spirit on all flesh, and it includes your servants and your handmaids talking to the nation of Israel. So the Holy Spirit is going to be doing a unique work during that time where he's indwelling uh, peoples and working within them and uh, assisting how that all functions beyond that, I'm not sure. Here's a question. Will Jesus, who rules and reigns during the millennium, be visible to every people all over the world at one time. Um, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 17 says we travel to Jerusalem to be able to worship Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that the answer would be no, that we're going to have to go to Jerusalem to see Jesus Christ. Are we saints going to witness the great white throne judgment? Probably. Can you imagine watching while your loved one who never accepted Christ is brought out of hell, judged and condemned forever? No, I cannot imagine that. Okay, this should be motivation why we get out the gospel, okay, so that we don't see that happening. Will this be hard? Oh, absolutely, positively. May I make an observation? It is only after this, after the great white throne judgment, that the statement is made in Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Does it have to do with our crying over seeing people being damned into hell forever? Here's a question that somebody asked. Matthew 24, verse 19. It says, Woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. Explain the verse. Do you remember the context of this verse? This is when Antichrist comes into control at the middle of the tribulation. Antichrist is now going to go after which group of people? The Jews. Okay. And it says at that moment, Jesus said, Woe unto you who are nursing a child, who are just bearing a child. Why would he say that? Because if you have to go in flight and you have to flee for your life, would it be easier with or without a child? Without a child. And so that woe is the idea of great sorrow, great punishment, great pain. I can imagine, can't you, that one of the greatest sufferings in any time of persecution would be to see your children being persecuted. Yes, no? Okay, so that's, that's the context, is to the Jewish people whose children are going to be under that persecution. The souls of the Old Testament saints are in heaven. Right now they are. What do their bodies leave? When do the bodies leave the grave? That's not going to be at the rapture, because the rapture is for church saints. Is it after the tribulation? Yes, I think so. When we were talking about the sheep goat judgment, we made the comment that according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it talks about the Old Testament saints going into being, being given the bodies that will uh, allow them to go into the millennium. So between the tribulation and the millennium, I believe that's when the Old Testament saints are going to be given their bodies, and that's based on Daniel chapter 12. We must be born again in to enter heaven. Because the Jewish nation is God's chosen people, will the Jewish remnant be saved in the tribulation. Yeah, Zechariah chapter 14. Um, starting with verse chapter 13 is the battle of Armageddon. Then it talks about, in, it's in chapter 13, look at verses 8 and 9. In Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, it talks about that uh, while the nations are coming against uh, Jerusalem, ready to pounce on and destroy it, that God has a remnant of one-third of the Jewish people who are alive at that time. They are his remnant that he will rescue. 
when he returns to the Mount, uh, Mount of Olives. In fact, it talks about that same idea when it says that all those people, when they see him descending, they will cry out loud, the Lord is our God. And so Romans 11 gives the same reference, same idea that until the fullness, of, that there's a remnant that will be in existence until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles. Here's a question. You said that the curse of intense pain in childbearing may be gone during the millennium. Is that, but wasn't that part of the consequence of sin in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember in the Garden of Eden there was there was the curse against Adam and Eve and against Satan. Are any of you still with me? Okay. Do you remember the curse that Adam is going to have to toil and labor hard? Do you remember the serpent's curse? Okay, he's going to crawl on his stomach, going to be despised. Do you remember the curse for ladies? There was three things given for ladies. Okay? One of the curses that is, that is there is dealing with, what did you say it was? It had to do with childbirth. What did you say is happening? It doesn't say pain in childbirth. Somebody said it. Increase the pain in childbirth. Okay? Which gives the implication, okay, there could be, without a curse, there could be pain in childbirth, but it's multiplied, okay, as part of the curse. Um, so the reason I said that, we know that the entire curse is not lifted until we get into new heaven, new earth. Revelation 22, verse 5. However, in the millennium, is the toil lessened, is that curse of, the, of toiling lessened than throughout most of history? The answer is yes. The world is more prosperous. Is the, the uh, despising of the snake somewhat lifted during the millennium? Yeah, the, the child will play at the hole of the asp and the viper. Okay, and so I'm making um, uh, an A, B equals C conclusion here that could be wrong. Okay, if part of the curse is removed, then it could be that part of that multiplying of pain in childbirth is lifted so that it's not the same as it is now, and therefore giving birth would be easier than it is now, therefore there would be more births. And so in that context, that idea that the multiplication could be lifted during that time. If our babies go to heaven upon death, why do we oppose abortion? Um... Because that's, those are two different questions. Okay, just two different questions. Abortion is opposed because God says it's murder. Okay, the book of Exodus makes it very clear that when somebody attacked a woman and harmed the child in her womb and the child died, that person's life was forfeited. Okay, it was murder. So whether or not children go to heaven is not an issue whatsoever. Abortion is murder, is wrong because of God's standard of right and wrong. The slaying of the innocents is always wrong. In fact, let me say this. Even if somebody goes to hell, okay, they've never believed, is it wrong to murder them? Yes or no? Oh, always, always. It's always wrong. Okay? And so... Um, God's standard is, we, we oppose abortion because God's standard is against murder. For all children who are miscarried, etc., etc., do they receive eternal life? I answer that. What verses teach that anyone born during the millennium will be redeemed? Um, there is no specific verse. There isn't a verse that clearly teaches that. 
but other than here are my ABC conclusions. We know Isaiah 65, verse 20, that some people born during that time period will die. If somebody dies at 100 years old, they'll be considered just but a child. We know that Isaiah 65, verse 23, we know that there will be offspring born. Very clearly we had pointed this out. Isaiah 65, uh, verse 23, that children will be born during that time period. We know that many born during that time period will rebel at the end. So with that in mind, we also know that during the millennium, Joel 2, the Spirit is poured out on some people who are living during that time period in their bodies. The Spirit is poured out upon sons and daughters of the Jews, which could be those born during that time period. And we know that in Zechariah 14 that entire families are required of all the people living outside of Jerusalem to come to Jerusalem and to worship, including those who are birthing and having children. And so just an assumption that some of them will get saved and some of them will rebel. Beyond that, I can't answer with a specific verse. Uh, we've answered that. Here's another one. Um, how can the devil think he can win when he knows God's will? Doesn't he know the Bible? Does the Satan know the Bible? Yes, he does. He quotes it. Does Satan know what God predicts? What's the problem then? He's the devil. Okay. He doesn't want to believe what God says. He opposes what God says. He chooses to try to, to, try to, um, to usurp God. That's a good term. Thank you. And so he's, you know, he's going to continue. And if he can win in just one area... He's won. And so he's going to keep on trying and trying and trying and trying. I guess it kind of goes like this. Why do your children keep on doing something you told them not to do? It's part of their nature. In their nature. Okay. Last question. What beginner study materials can you suggest in addition to the Bible? That's a good one. Okay. For studying the Bible, uh, the Revelation. I put several books out there that uh, some of them are dated, but they might give you, say, they are all very good. They are very helpful and they're very good material. Um, this is going to sound horrible, so I'm glad my time is, is almost up within 30 seconds. Um, I can say with confidence, if you want to listen to series that give you a consistent truth, uh, how do I say this? This is so arrogant, so pompous. Um, we, have, we have series that we've done in the past. They're on, they're on the uh, Internet. And you can go back, you can study them. There's materials we can give you as well. Uh, it's not that I'm any better or the staff is any better than other authors. It's just that the, the materials being put out today are very confusing. Usually most end-time studies talks more about current affairs than it does the predictions. Does that, do you know what I mean? Because you've got to sell a book. You've got to sell something that really catches people's attention. People would rather be, okay, what, what device is going to be used? We don't know. We just know the stage is being set. And so there's materials out there. If you want to study heaven, if you want to study the book of Revelation, I put some books out there. Get an idea on Daniel's prophecy. There's a little book by Alva J. McLean that says the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's a small little paperback, one of the best you'll ever find on that passage of the 70 weeks. When you pick up the book, be very careful. The pages will fall out. Okay, so put the pages back, please. Um, there's other material there, but I would encourage you be very careful when you just see anything on the internet. 
There is so much on the internet that is not consistent in doctrine, and there's some things on the internet that are good. Okay? Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it right. Okay? Please be discerning. And you say, well, I read on the internet that somebody believes that there is no rapture. And they had a verse or two. Hey, folk, Satan uses a verse or two. Okay? So be discerning. Be very, very careful and discerning.